0: To Connecting citizens to science: a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano,
1: and I'm B. Egged. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health.
0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's brand new series is all about promoting social change with communities and people living and working within urban informal spaces. The ARISE research team, which stands for Accountability and Responsiveness in Informal Settlements for Equity, works with residents of informal settlements who are partners in research, often termed co-researchers. Together they are working to co-develop solutions to health and well-being challenges. The multi-country ARISE research approach which we will explore more throughout the months, has found that telling stories and using visual methods are really useful ways to bridge the power-laden distances between the lived realities of people, the research that's being done, and the policy that needs to change. These methods aim to help researchers and communities to find joint ways of making sense of different power and how we can challenge that power so that people and scientists can work together. I will be here with my brand new co-host, Robinson Karuba. So Robinson, how are you today? And tell us a bit about hi. yourself.
2: Oh, hi, Kim. Hi, everyone. I'm really delighted to join in this podcast. I'm a research scientist by training, and my main fo- area of focus is health systems research, and I do more community uh, health research. And my specific focus is around governance and quality improvement in research. So. Uh, I also do a lot of research uh, around community-based, but especially research methods, where we seek to understand the, you know the, how to improve health and well-being amongst citizens who live in informal settlements in uh, low and middle-income countries. So glad to be here, and yeah, that's uh, over to you, Kim.
0: Welcome. So, we are also here with two guests, Invioletta and Shritika, who will be helping us to understand how they've used creative methods to connect with people in urban marginalized communities. So, Invioletta, can you start by introducing yourself, who you are, and uh, some of the work you do?
1: Hello, Kim. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here. My name is Inviolata Njoroge. I work for a local a non-governmental, non-profit-making organization in Kenya called LVCT Health. Currently, I work as a research officer for the ARISE study. Before joining ARISE study, I worked in uh, a PEPFA-funded uh Adoles and Girls and Young Women program called DREAMS. And DREAMS stands for Determined, Resilient, Empowered, Aids-Free, Mentored, and Safe the program aimed at uh, reducing HIV acquisition among vulnerable girls and young women living in informal settlements, so in a rise am pretty much home, and also in poor rural areas with high uh, incidence of HIV, of HIV. In this program, I coordinated the implementation of uh, structural interventions which indirectly act on vulner- vulnerabilities that increase the risk of HIV transmission.
0: Thanks very much. It sounds like you've got lots of experience working with uh, people in informal settlements and also different population groups, which will be really um, interesting for our listeners. Shritika, same question to you. Tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do. Where are you in the world? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. So
3: I'm based out of uh, New Delhi currently, which is the capital city of uh, India. And I work as a research assistant at the George Institute for Global Health in Delhi. It's an independent uh, medical research institute uh, with its headquarters in Australia, but it has its branches in India, UK, and China as well. So at the George Institute, I'm working um, on the Arise Hub as well. And as a part of this hub, we work with uh, waste workers So which includes uh, sanitation workers, door-to-door garbage collectors, and waste pickers in the informal sector, who are more commonly referred to as rag pickers, uh, in three states of India. So we have um, a diverse range of waste workers um, that we are working with. Uh, I've done my bachelor's in economics uh, and my master's in international relations. I'm currently pursuing my PhD in global health uh, from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and it's located uh, within Arise itself. So I work on Arise and I do my PhD together. It's really nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Welcome. That sounds really interesting and I think we want to understand the population groups that you both work with a little bit more before we move on to, to Robinson. So Shrutika, maybe you can describe a bit more about waste workers and some of the considerations that you've had to think about when Doing research with this extremely marginalized population?
3: Right. Uh, so, I think um, within the rubric of Arise, obviously, it's to work with uh, people who live and work in urban informal settlements. And I think when we had to uh, begin our work in India, we were confounded with this question in terms of which population groups to work with. Um, and I think at that point of time, we realized that within urban informal settlements, um, the group of waste workers tend to be the most uh, marginalized and oppressed uh, because of the nature of their occupation. Waste in itself is often seen as a uh, taboo and um, you tend, everybody tends to distance themselves from it. So all the more for people who actually work with this um, occupation day in and day out, um, they experience the sense of othering in various ways um, every day. Uh, so, within waste workers, there's also um, people who are called manual scavengers who go down in drains and sewage um, and, uh, you know, try to work there. But we figured that that is a group of people that um, is already being represented and uh, researched about in various quarters. Uh, but what we found is that sanitation workers and door to door garbage collectors, and especially waste pickers in the informal sector, Uh, didn't seem to have um, much headway um, in terms of the research that was being conducted in India. So at that point of time, I think we decided to go with uh, the three states um, that I told you about. And one of them happens to be Himachal Pradesh, which is in the northern part of the country. Now, it's actually located in the Himalayas. So the terrain um, is very different. There are hills, there are steep slopes, So to imagine door-to-door garbage collection there is actually very uh, difficult. And what we found is that in current scholarship um, and knowledge, there's actually not a lot about the way and the challenges that come forth uh, with door-to-door collection in such areas. So I think those are some of the considerations that we had to uh, make um, in terms of uh, working with the communities and also uh, with, I think, our access to grassroots partners as well. So in the southern uh, states that we have, we do work with uh, grassroots partners who've had access to these communities for decades. Uh, But it's only Himachal uh, where we are actually directly working with the communities without any kind of interface or uh, grassroots partner as well. So that has its uh, own challenges and strengths.
0: Yes, I can imagine it introduces another partner into the research process. So that's really interesting. Just for our listeners, are there any social political aspects that would be useful for our listeners to understand from a context point of view?
3: Uh, yeah, so I think um, especially in the case of India um, and waste work, uh, caste is actually very central. So caste, the caste system is um, the system that's been used to differentiate uh, people based um on their ancestors and the kind of caste that they were uh, born into. Um, And waste workers um, usually come under uh, this um, legal definition of being a scheduled caste. So they are in the most dominated um, caste within this caste system. And it's usually people from this caste perform uh, this kind of stigmatizing work um, in itself so caste has a very big role um and i think um migrants migrant workers are also people who end up coming into these occupations because they can't actually find a lot of work in their own um, host con- uh, host states as well um and in terms of gender so um, what we've observed is that Uh, You know, within uh, waste picking in the informal sector, uh, there are a lot of women who do waste picking, but they're always at the lower rungs of the waste picking process. So they're the ones who are actually involved in uh, collecting and picking waste, the actual act of picking waste. Uh, The more uh, remunerative the waste treatment uh, process happens, uh, more and more men seem to occupy um, those levels. So you don't see a lot of women being scrap dealers. You usually have men occupying those positions of power where uh, the prices of different recyclables are getting decided. So it's very rare to see uh, women occupying um, those positions.
0: Thank you. I think that really sets up very well. And so just quickly, Violeta, um, moving over to Kenya now, what are the, the, a similar question, what are the things that you've had to consider in your work when trying to to work with um, communities?
1: Yes, the ARISE study is implemented by multiple partners and uh, our mandate in this uh, is to document experiences of most vulnerable populations living in the informal settlements, uh, which are elderly persons, uh, persons living with disability and children heading households. So for these populations, what we realise is that they are very hidden Populations. Uh, it may sound that they are not stigmatized. However, they are very, very hidden. When we were recruiting um, our study participants, who are not very many, given the type of uh, we were going to use photo voice as a, a data collection method, it was very difficult to find children heading households as study participants. So they are there in the community, but they are not seen. They are completely voiceless, and even when there are programs and interventions that are meant to target children in general and children who are vulnerable, mostly they are left out. We took about two weeks to to find the the children participants. However, we had already uh, we already had recruited persons with disability as well as the elderly persons. So that is one thing we we learned. And I think it's uh, when uh, um, other people are implementing research, it's something that, uh, especially targeting children who are vulnerable, something to consider. Um, The other thing uh, around uh, the recruitment was the use of uh, community health workers or the community resource persons. They were very instrumental in identifying who these are because most of the time we do have data, population data, but uh, it's not very specific. Uh, So it becomes very difficult to just go into a community and try and get them. So the use of community resource persons was helpful in that process.
0: Thank you very much. Child-headed households um, is is a term maybe that I, when I hand to Robinson, you could explore a little bit more and how the method uh, connected with child-headed households. So I can see we have an extremely uh, stigmatized, dominated population in India and and in Kenya, you're working with these hidden populations. So Robinson, I will hand over to you to explore the methods a little bit more and, and how they access those communities.
2: All right. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. And thank you very much, Rutika and, uh, and Inviolata. I feel like I've learned so much about the marginalized and vulnerable populations uh, that are very much hidden in plain sight. So maybe Inviolata, before we jump into the methods, could you speak a little bit more about child headed households?
1: The children heading households. Um children who take up uh the parental responsibilities or Uh, responsibilities uh, that the guardians or the parents should be taking up and most of the time what we found out that uh, they are rendered into that situation because of uh, either they are they were abandoned by their parents uh, a mother just uh, woke up just left one night and left the children sleeping and so the the elder child takes up the responsibility of uh, taking care of their other siblings. They even have to drop out of school just to take care of them. The other thing is around alcoholism. There are some parents who are completely incapacitated uh, by alcoholism or drugs. They would wake up in a, in a drinking den and even sleep there, so they don't pay rent. They don't try and fend for the children in terms of food, or even paying their school fees. So the elder, the uh, the most, the senior most child is the one who takes up that responsibility. The other situation is around the uh, sickness uh, or ailments that uh, have the parents or the, the mother or the father bedridden. So when they are bedridden, they are unable to, to look for work, or provide for the children in any way. So, in those circumstances, are the ones that lead to children heading households. And uh, from what we have observed, um, my own observation as we've collected uh, the data, children heading households uh, do not benefit from sympathy that orphans would benefit from, given that people would say, or the community, looks at them as children who have their parents. So whatever situation is going uh, on there, they don't get so much sympathy as uh, orphans would uh, receive from the community. And so what happens is that they have this very huge burden in their lives, given that they are not only taking care of themselves, but they're also taking care of the parents who are incapacitated or are just irresponsible
2: Oh thanks, Violeta. and I'm really impressed with the work that you're doing. So let me move on to Shrutika. I'm very interested to know more about the methods that you apply uh you know to connect with the you know the, the marginalized populations that you had spoken about earlier. So please tell us a little bit more about the methods that you use to connect with these citizens.
3: I think over the course of the last three years we've really had to Uh, learn, relearn and unlearn uh, practices of the way that we conduct um, research with the community. Um, And for most of the communities and subgroups of communities of waste workers that we are working with, a large number of them are um, illiterate. So they cannot um, read and or write. Um, And so I think even we've encountered challenges in just trying to communicate uh, the basic fundamentals of the research itself it's not even about going into the details it's just about trying to even translate say the acronym of arise into something that uh, the communities will possibly understand and it's also to i think make that message very clear and concise and not overwhelm them with um, what we're trying to do because i think the moment that one says research people tend to get um, Uh, slightly overwhelmed and also defensive about it because there's been a history of um, very unethical research practices and researchers just coming in, uh, using them as um, data entry points and just kind of leaving. So um, with the communities uh, that struggle to read um, and or write, I think our focus has been constantly on evolving and adapting audiovisual methods.
2: Yeah, so Shrutika, um, you recently published a very powerful blog, and I love the title, very catchy title. Uh, It's titled Invisible Lives Behind visible waste experiences of sanitation workers and waste pickers in India so to all our readers uh, this very powerful blog was published in the BMJ global health uh, that was in June of 2020 so Shrutika uh, yeah tell us a little bit more about the methods that that you applied uh, you know for this research
3: um So there was this time when we were very new uh, to working with um, waste-picking communities in the informal sector, and we actually didn't know what their work um, looks like or what was involved. Um, So there's this uh, practice or a method of shadowing under the larger rubric of participant observation. And what that effectively means is that um, you shadow the person of interest. You're effectively their shadow. They continue to work and do the kind of work that they do. And your job in that sense is to just observe and not effectively um, intervene in um, the workings um, of that person. Um, It's another thing if uh, that individual decides to have a conversation with you um, about something uh, which ended up happening with me. So um, in 2019, I was shadowing a waste picker in the informal sector in uh, the southern state of Andhra Pradesh. So um, through that time, so you know, we I actually left at two thirty in the morning from the waste picker's home, and then shadowed throughout, shadowed her throughout the city until about five or six pm till she was done. So throughout that period of time, she did not eat a single meal. She did not stop by uh, for a sip of water at all because it was very important for her to uh, make that earning for the day. Uh, They don't earn a salary. So whatever recyclables it is that they collect, um, uh, you know, the sale of that is their earning uh, for the day. Um, And so that process was one thing. Of course, I had reflections from it. I captured a few pictures, uh, videos about how that work was done. But I think at the, um, and when we had a debrief with the team, we were wondering about how do we actually take this Uh, not just back to the communities that we're working with in other action sites, um, but also to the larger audience in terms of the general public to make them a little more aware and sensitive about this issue. Um, And that is when we actually thought about the idea of a photo essay. So a photo essay in a sense was a mix. It wasn't um, in a typical mainstream photo essay where you have very small captions. This was weaved more like a story in terms of my conversation with the waste picker while I was uh, shadowing her. So there were all of these pictures and videos, but they were supplemented with text as well. Um, And when that process was done, we went through quite a few rounds of drafting it. So we went back um, to um, her and we actually sat her down. We sat with her. Um, And because the text was prepared in English, we translated everything into the vernacular. Uh, And because she couldn't read and or write, so we orally um, narrated that whole story. And we showed her the way that the pictures um, and the videos were appearing. And we asked her whether this is an accurate representation. Is this okay? Do you feel like you don't like the way that you're being represented here? So, you know, all of her feedback and everything was... um, Incorporated, and then that piece of work was actually published. So I think through that, um, that I think the the way that pictures and videos can actually speak, words can't really do justice. So we've shown that photo essay to a lot of the other community members that we work with across the action sites, and it is far more relational uh, than I think words um, uh, ever can. So. Um, I think that's the way that we've uh, learned that um, in any presentation that we do with our community members, it's not so much about doing a PowerPoint presentation. That PowerPoint presentation, whenever it has a lot of text on it, people tend to get um, a bit uncomfortable with it. Uh, you can also see that the attention span kind of starts fizzling out because they're just not comfortable with that setting. The moment you just have one picture or you just have one video, showing them the kind of work that they do but in a different setting it's far more relational for them and it starts uh the conversation in a much more um comfortable and efficient manner
2: mm-hmm. oh that's really powerful and the title it, it can't leave my mind invisible lives behind visible waste uh, so that's really insightful so Uh, I'll stick a little bit with you uh, just to explore deeper. So how did this method of shadowing really bring out the voices of of this marginalized population? How do you feel it benefited them?
3: What I felt is that um, through the shadowing process, um, I as a researcher with many layers of privilege understood from a distance what it involves or feels like to be a waste picker I'm I'm just saying that from a distance I still don't know what it feels like to be a waste picker Um, so it's very um, grounding to actually experience that um, in person so it's not just it's very different to you know sit down with a waste picker or a waste worker and ask them okay so you know tell me a little bit about your work what does it involve So if she had told me that, you know, I woke up at 2.30 in the morning in this setting, it doesn't give me an idea in terms of the surrounding in which she wakes up. It doesn't give me that um, context in which she starts working. It completely, um, it just doesn't involve the way that the people speak to her. But I think when I uh, shadowed her, I could observe all of that. I understood that when she wakes up at 2.30 in the morning, it's under a flyover. And it's as informal as a setting that can get where you're, you know, surrounding surrounded by lots of animals. But, you know, 2.30 a.m. is usually a time that you would consider is so uh, quiet um, and things like that everywhere else in the city. But for their settlement, it's a very, very active space because they have to get out as early as they can in order to get to that recyclable waste. So I think to your question, Robinson, it provided a sense of groundedness and contextuality. Uh, so I don't know whether, I, I really cannot say whether it benefited uh, the waste pickers, but I think what it gave us is um, a sense of um, grounding and confidence to uh, document and articulate what they were saying in a much more, um, Refined and nuanced manner, so it gave us the confidence that we were not actually um, articulating things that were just at the top of our heads or imagination. We knew that it is located somewhere, and there was evidence of that. So, yeah.
2: Well, thanks, Shrutika, for, for you know for really sharing, uh, you know, the work that you're doing uh, with these marginalized groups. So, uh, let's move to the Kenyan context. So, Invelata, tell us a little bit more. Uh, about, about the work that you're doing with the marginalized people that you, you mentioned earlier on. So.
1: For um, Arise, we use the photo voice method to collect uh, data on vulnerability from persons with disability, the older persons, as well as the children heading households. We identified just a few of uh, participants from each of those categories. We trained them on photography. And uh, the training included techniques of uh, photography as well as the ethics of uh, taking photos. We then left them free to take photos of aspects they considered important in their lives, but uh, centered around vulnerability and marginalization. We then had uh, an interview uh, centered around those, the, fo- the photographs that they took and during these uh, interviews, they described wh- uh, what the photo was about and what they wanted to communicate through that photograph and perhaps what they would want to see change so that they can have a better picture of that situation. We also conducted uh, other interviews with uh, other participants of similar um, demographics, so, we had also other children from the community who were heading households just to collaborate that the information that we got, or just to check if the experiences of that were shared by the photo voice participants is the same as what these other uh, children heading households, or the older persons, or even persons with disability, if it was the same.
2: How does this photovoice method help to bring out the stories? I
1: think photovoice is a very powerful uh, method of data collection. It brings out uh, aspects that uh, a normal interview wouldn't bring out. They would capture their lives at night uh, spontaneously, even as uh, situations arise. And that is something that we wouldn't be able to capture in an interview where you're seated with somebody face to face, or you are ticking off uh, a questionnaire. So that that uh, to me that was very powerful. And uh, as they describe their the, the the photos during that the follow up interview, then you can see all the emotions and uh, how uh, how that situation that is captured by that photo affects them and it's much more than what the words uh, would describe so it's a very rich method and um, even the very silent participants who will not speak much uh, and i will give an example we had uh, we had two participants who were very very silent very silent um, when we have some uh, fgds that is focus group Discussions with uh, with other people they wouldn't speak a word in that setting, and even when you sit with them one to one they they wouldn't speak much, but their photos speak a lot because really they are powerful and they have they have very deep meaning but in terms of them just speaking out, they are still very voiceless they are, they lack confidence, but they did a good job with the photos. So that is one aspect that brings out the voices of the voiceless.
2: Wow. Oh, sounds like a very powerful method. Thanks, Inviolata. So uh, let me ask you this uh, one last question before I move on to Shrutika. Uh, So if anybody wants to use photo voice uh, to bring out the voices of the voiceless, so what what things should they consider or should they put in place before they even head out into the field for photo voice?
1: We do have the advantage of technology nowadays. Simple phones and uh, there is, uh, that can be used to take very good uh, photos. And uh, the good thing about photography, it's easy even to train the persons who are to take the photos, the, the, the vulnerable persons. And they get very excited to participate in that uh, exercise. So uh, at least technology. And we also have platforms where you can share, we can share the photos
2: Easily, we have WhatsApp.
1: There's, uh, I mean, yeah, WhatsApp is an easy way, or even emails, Google Drive, search. So those are good platforms and it makes the work easier. Um, the other thing is uh, to to prepare the the research assistants or the people who are going to work with the the study participants because. Uh, It's not an easy exercise. Uh, Going to, even seeing the photos, discussing with them about all those vulnerabilities affects a person. Um, Our own um, mental health is uh, even challenged. (laughs) And I will give an example. Uh, After I started analyzing some data that had been collected prior before I had uh, joined Arise, I found myself... Um, packing chapati. Chapati is some sort of bread that is not leavened. So I would pack the chapatis and I'll I'll put in the dustbin so that when they are collected, those children will have food. But because <laughs> uh, what I had seen when I was analyzing the data is these children didn't have food. They will go and collect food at a dump site. So in my <laughs> Way of thinking, uh, and I wasn't conscious until my husband told me. I think uh, uh, there's a problem here. What you are doing, I don't think, it's benefiting who you want to benefit. But uh, so I think they, 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 they can, they can uh that participating in in photo voice can have some challenge to the research assistants who are supporting that kind of. Uh, methods of data collection.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Invlata. That that's really insightful, and I, I believe our li- uh, listeners are listening to this. And yeah, uh, the, it's good lessons about what to consider before going out into the field. Uh, so, Shrutika, uh, you told us you you shadowed the way speakers from two thirty in the morning. Uh, but I mean, in the in the context of shadowing our Uh, you know, this invisible or the marginalized community. So what should somebody put in mind or put in place before shadowing?
3: Um, Thanks for your question, Robinson. So I think um, when I've been thinking about this question in terms of what uh, needs to be put in place, I think more than anything, I think there needs to be um, a sense of uh, reflection and clarity within the research team that decides to um, implement something as shadowing as to why do you want to do shadowing like why do you want to use uh, this method I think a round of discussion within the research team and just individually as an independent researcher um, or in whatever capacity you need to have uh, that sense of discussion with yourself in terms of why you want to use this particular method, because the way that you will conduct um, that method or you put that method into use will largely be dictated by your outlook towards uh, that method and your purpose. The way that I've done shadowing will be very different from the way anybody else in a, another context would do it. You know, shadowing is not something that has uh, been used only for Uh, those who are marginalised and those who have been oppressed, I think it's been used because participant observation as a larger um, method has been used in very different uh, contexts, even for industrial purposes. So I think one is that sense of um, clarity and discussion. Second is um, naturally to take uh, permission from your uh, grassroots partners and the communities that you're going to be working with. And uh, really explaining to uh, them and having that really open conversation with them in terms of what this shadowing involves. We need to be really honest with them that we do take down notes. Um, and a lot of the time, sometimes, uh, you know, somebody you're shadowing, uh, they, they will tend to feel very like, you know, under the microscope because you have a person who's shadowing and noticing every move that you make. It can be a very disconcerting and uncomfortable feeling especially if you think that I'm doing something wrong or that's against the law or that's something that's frowned upon, somebody is making a note of that. So I think um, for the person that uh, is being shadowed, it's very important for both of you to have that sense of trust that you know, if they actually tell you that, please don't make a record of this, don't document this, don't make a note of this, you need to respect that, right? So I think that level of trust um, and rapport needs to be involved with the person um, that you're shadowing. And three, obviously, that in case you decide to produce any kind of output from this exercise, whether it's your own reflections, anything that's going actually in a public platform that talks about their life, I think it is um, our responsibility to actually go back. Uh, to um, the person who has participated in this process and let them know that this is the way that I've articulated it. It might be your own blog. It might be about your own feelings and um, expressions and thoughts, but it is still um, emerging from observing somebody else. And I think without them being in the picture, you probably wouldn't have had this train of thought. So I think that is the kind of level of accountability um, that you have. Uh, to the person that you're shadowing so um, they have as much of a right to know um, how their life and their story has been articulated so I think those are the three things that I would advise
2: Wow. All right. Well, thank you, Shrutika, and thank you so much, Inviolata. You're doing commendable work, and I'm really looking forward to reading more about the works that you publish or write up, and I've been following some of the work that you've been doing at the ariseconsortium.org. So looking forward to reading a lot of the stories that are coming out from these marginalized communities. Uh, Every good thing has to come to an end, so Let me hand you over to Kim. Thank
0: you so much, I have learned so much and really good to see the considerations of mental health of researchers and communities. We get so wrapped up in research sometimes that I think we can forget about that. So uh, really good to hear that and to reflect on your own personal motivation for doing a method. I don't think we've come across that and I really like that. So thank you both for enriching uh, myself and our listeners. So in 30 seconds, name one piece of advice you would give to researchers and scientists so that they can better connect with communities. Shritika. Okay. So I think one piece of advice that I would uh, give to anybody
3: that's working with uh, marginalized communities is to to really practice um, sensitivity and reflexivity. And be very conscious of uh, the language um, and terms uh, that we use uh, while talking to them. I think um, a lot of the time we really um, subsume um, their sense of agency um, by thinking that either because they're illiterate or because they live in urban and formal settlements, they actually don't know uh, what they're talking about. And we're here to tell them. So I think... um, that sense of uh, reflexivity about one's own positionality and privilege really needs uh, to be thought through more as researchers or as anybody else who's uh, working with uh, marginalized communities. And also remember that at the end of the day, they are also human beings um, with um, all goodnesses and flaws. So it's also important to not romanticize any particular community or any particular individual because we're all Human beings at the end of the day, so there is no, um, you know, there's no need to kind of epitomize or make anybody a god or goddess in this process. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Shrutika. Violeta, one piece of advice that you would give to our audience of how you can connect with communities better as a researcher or scientist?
1: Uh, I would say that uh, vulnerable. Persons are very hidden, so there's need for really uh, intense effort and uh, patience in finding the right uh, study participants if you want to research around very vulnerable populations. Because most of the time you will get participants who are not very vulnerable, given that they are the ones that uh, can easily be found. Then Photovoice also provides a a platform for uh, for participants to to sort of debrief. And sometimes emotions flare up and wounds uh, bleed again. So there's a need uh, to consider having psychosocial support system even as uh, data is being collected.
0: Great advice there from both Sritika and Inva from the Arise Consortium. So thank you very much for being wonderful guests and Robinson for for joining me as a co-host. Thank you to our listeners for, for listening today. Goodbye.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you too. And bye. Thank you.